The year was 1988, and a startup shoe company hired a renowned ad agency by the name of Wyden and Kennedy to create a new, fresh marketing campaign that would feature somewhere between six and eight commercials showcasing the benefits of their new footwear in various sporting genres. At the time, this was a huge deal. Not only was this the first type of campaign for this company, uh, but $25 million was being invested. This brought with it quite a bit of pressure for this team to nail the campaign. Well, as the chief creative for the project, Dan Wyden recounts, the night before his team was to present their campaign before the client, he was very worried. They had six to eight commercials, and yet there was no centralized theme that connected them. They were just too fragmented. He was really worried that because it lacked a central theme, that it would fall flat altogether and be rejected. Well, that's the story goes, frustrated, that they were unable to come up with an adequate tagline they could hang the campaign upon the two phrase, catch lines that they had come up with at this point really stunk. They were, a sneaker is forever. <laughs> and got kicks. Like that was their two best ideas. Terrible ideas. He knew they were terrible. The team knew they were terrible. And so Dan made a very bold decision. It's the night before the presentation. They got nothing but he sends his team home for the night. As the story turns, Dan packed up his stuff, packed up his briefcase. He was making his way out of the building when he ended up having a chance conversation with a colleague in the men's restroom. This conversation affects your life. That's how big this is. The conversation was about a book written by Norman Naylor that documented the execution, the life crime and execution of a man by the name of Gary Gilmore. Dan not only read the book, but he was really familiar with the case because he was really close friends with Michael Gilmore, who at the time was a writer for Rolling Stone magazine and was the brother of Gary. All three of them had grown up together in Portland. In 1976, Gary unexplainably murdered and was convicted, a double murder in the state of Utah, which was not a very great thing because in the state of Utah, you were convicted for a double murder. They didn't allow you to live yourself very long. He was convicted and sentenced to be executed for his crimes by firing squad. One of the last cases, uh, last individuals to be executed in such a way. Now, while the conversation itself hadn't immediately stirred any type of creative juices, Dan later describes that in the middle of the night, he woke with a thought, an epiphany. According to Mailer's account, as Gary stood in front of the firing squad, just before the hood was placed over his head, given the opportunity to utter some final words, his words rang out with a certain amount of grit, unexpected grit in the face of such uncertainty. Gary simply said, Let's do it. Well, after a little tweaking, Dan felt he had now come up with the perfect tagline that would make this campaign just as appealing for the mom who's about to 
get back into exercising in the park as much as it would appeal to the Olympic athlete ready for competition. For the next 30 years, Nike's slogan would be, just do it, coming from the words of an executed man. Now, before we dive into our text, let's recap what we discussed last Sunday when we set out to define what Paul meant when he brings up this idea of the flesh, predominant concept in Paul's writings. The Bible, as we noted last Sunday, presents man as a trichotomy, meaning that every human being is made up of three distinct parts. You have a physical body that tethers you to the physical world, an immaterial soul that is the non-material essence of who you are, your being. Thus, when your body dies, you live forever. And you have a spirit which provides life to both the body as well as the soul. This means upon coming to Christ Jesus, when the spirit of sin is replaced with the spirit of God, you are literally born again. As the Holy Spirit replaces this previous spirit, providing life to your soul, as it reconciles you back to God, thus it makes you righteous and sinless, a son and heir, words Paul brings up in Galatians. And yet, the spirit, while it now has power to control the body, because the Holy Spirit sits in the seat of desire, the problem, as we know, is that the literal effects of sin and this body still remain. You see, when Paul refers to the flesh, he's referencing your unregenerated mortal body, which remains tainted and corrupted by sin and death, even though you've been made alive in Christ. And when we talk about the body, the physical part of you, this would include the mind, where thoughts and emotions and feelings originate, as well as your genetic traits and your tendencies, you know, things that drive your personality, dictate your habits, your predispositions. Unlike the soul and the spirit, as part of the physical, natural world, your body is still waiting to experience the regeneration your soul and spirit have already incurred at a yet future resurrection. The body, unlike the soul, will die. You're going to die. The statistics are unbelievable. Now, what makes Paul's exhortation here to walk in the spirit so you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh? You know, you can turn it around. If you don't want to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, what do you do? Walk in the spirit. What makes this whole concept so radical is that it fundamentally stands in opposition to our culture, which encourages you to obey the lusts of the flesh. Like in a real sense, our culture encourages you to what? To just do it. You have to think about it. If you have the inclination, if you have the desire, if you have the motivation, just do it. Our culture, it encourages you to obey your flesh, but our culture also brazenly declares it immoral to speak against someone engaging in this particular pursuit without thinking it through to the logical end. Operating according to one's desires is today the moral norm. With anyone brave enough to speak contrary to this reality, branded as being intolerant, bigoted, judgmental, hateful, 
ultimately phobic in America. If someone wants to engage in a behavior that does not cause physical harm to someone else, they have a moral right to do so, and no one possesses the moral authority to tell them they're wrong. Today, I was born this way, is used as the justification for all types of behaviors that just a few years ago were viewed as twisted and perverse. Understand this. While it's true, the desires of our flesh may be natural, it does not mean these desires are the intended result of creation or the desired functions of the creator. The Bible clearly says not only that you're fundamentally broken the moment you're born, but it affirms the desires of your flesh have been thoroughly corrupted by sin. Your flesh, even right now, this moment, is naturally an active and continual rebellion to its design and its designer. You want to pay attention. You came to church this morning. You want the Spirit to speak to you. You want to hear from God. You want a transformation to happen. Your flesh wants none of it. Your eyelids don't want any of it. They begin to droop. And your mind, it's like, I really want this. I need this. And the flesh is like, nope. I ain't going to give it to you. And you're like, I'm going to get you a cup of coffee. I'm going to load you with caffeine. And while you're trying to resist me, you're hyped up, man. You're going to have to let me pay attention. We find all types of ways. Your flesh, regardless of however it's born, is in rebellion to how it was designed and how the designer intended it to function. Like In this passage, the end of Galatians 5, Paul is boldly declaring I mean, he's standing up with a megaphone saying, friends, the flesh wants this. There is a different way. There is a better way. A better way to live that completely stands contrary to whatever your natural flesh desires. Sure, you're free to have it your way. It's another slogan, Burger King, follow me. You're free to have it your way. But you should understand the gospel provides a better way. Jesus not only created you, but then he died so that you might finally be able to live the way God intended. Not the way you are, but the way God wants you to be. Now the question really boils down to this. This is how we'll open this morning. Are you more than flesh? Are you more than this? Are you more than your personality, your genetics? Are you more than flesh and blood? And if so, will you embrace a new way of living, not by the flesh, because you're more than that, right? But instead by the spirit. Like like to to hammer this point home, Paul is now going to, to do something interesting. He's going to contrast the works of the flesh what the flesh does with the fruit of the spirit or what the spirit yields. And he does this in order to emphasize how important it is that we walk in the spirit 
so that we no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh or what this flesh naturally produces. Look at verse 19 of Galatians 5. Paul starts this section by saying, now the works of the flesh are evident. Pause. In the Greek, this word works, ergon, it literally means business, an act, a thing done. The works of the flesh, what the flesh sets out to do, what it makes its business taken care of. Then Paul says, these works the flesh occupies itself doing are evident. They're plainly known. Like what Paul's going to lay out here is not rocket science. We all get it. We all understand it. We all feel our flesh craving these things, leading us to these things. And please note, this is important before we get into the list, that what follows, what Paul writes out, these works of the flesh, these are the things your flesh will naturally manifest in your life if you allow it to. If you're not walking in the spirit and you're letting the flesh run unrestrained, if you allow the flesh to just do what it wants when it wants to, this is what it'll do naturally. Like you don't have to, you don't have to work. It will work to do it, which makes the list important. Look at it. Let's read it and then we'll unpack it. He says, the works of the flesh, they're evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition. Ugh, that one gets me. Dissensions, heresies, envy. There's another one's hard to run from. Murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Let's unpack it. First, first thing on the list, adultery. Adultery. This word describes any sexual activity that violates the marriage covenant between one man and one woman established by God. And it's significant that this word we find here as the first in the list of the works of the flesh. If you package all of this, the flow of Paul's arguments, if you put it all in context, he's talked about what? It's clear you're not walking in grace, that legalism has taken root, because look at how you handle one another. Like, what does grace produce? First and foremost, love. Love for one another. And it's clear you guys are off, not operating as God intended, because you're full of dissension, you're biting and devouring one another. This is Paul's argument earlier in the chapter. This isn't good. Look at the way you interact with each other. There's no love. Now, ultimately, the Bible gives us a picture of what God's love really looks like for us. And the picture he, he gives is that of marriage between one man and one woman entering into a covenant, not with just each other, but with God. I hope you understand that. Wives, your covenant, yes, it's, it's with him. But I hope you know that mainly it's with God. And fellas, your covenant is first with God and then it's with her. And that your union is a picture to the world of God's love. It's, it's why the woman is described in other places in scripture as the church, to submit to her husband. And on the flip side, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. So it's fitting here, right? 
that love is what's this, it's produced from this grace of God, this unmerited favor. I love God because he first loved me and I love others because God loved me. My love is a reciprocation of God's love, which is why now the works of the flesh immediately target what? God's picture of love. It hits it hard right from the beginning. I hope you understand. The spirit of God has never been in adultery. That's never been produced because the Holy Spirit was a part of it. Never, period. Adultery. Look then, next, fornication. In the Greek, this word is pornea. It's actually where we derive our term pornography from. In the original development of the term, it was used to describe someone who procured the services of a prostitute. And yet by Paul's day, the term had really just come to refer to any, anything that was sexually immoral, sexual immorality in a very broad sense of the term. Now understand, in Paul's culture, in this Galatian culture, there was a lot of sexual activity that was permissible in the culture. That was the norm. And yet Paul is speaking against it. Like in its cultural context, this world, word, it describes all premarital, as well as extramarital sexual activities. It's what fornication, doesn't just mean pornography. It can mean heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. That means sleeping with your girlfriend or shacking up. Like it's weird, why are you living with your boyfriend? Why are you living? Because we're just trying to figure out if we're compatible. Well, you're not in that sense. You're going to be in constant tension. It's the fall. Why are you sleeping? Oh, we want to know if we're sexually compatible. <laughs> sexually compatible. Um, seems like you have the parts that make that compatible. And I've never really run into anyone that had sex and thought, no, I'm, that, that just wasn't good. <laughs> Might not have been the best, but seriously. So what Paul's speaking of here, he's adultery, activities outside of this marriage covenant. Now fornication, sexual activities, either before the marriage covenant or extra from the marriage. Heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. It is a work of the flesh. Sexting. If it's with your wife, that's cool. Please understand that means it's everywhere. The, like there's, unless you're a terrorist in San Bernardino, most of our phones are completely wide open to the world. Like I would just encourage you not to like, like it goes to the cloud and people hack that stuff. Um, I would, if that's just your thing, like you and your wife, hey, all things are permissible, you and your wife, it, cool. If it's digitalized, be careful because it could end up being seen by other people. But if it's with someone other than your spouse, that's fornication. It's what it is. Homosexuality, fornication, bisexuality, orgies, transsexuality, bestiality, incest, anything that's premarital or extramarital. If it's in a sexual activity, it's fornication, uncleanness, uncleanness. This Greek word describes lustful living. 
Like, in a sense, it's the opposite of purity. And it's intentionally broad. And that's Paul's point. His, Paul, his point is to, is to kind of give this all-encompassing term to include things like mental filth, dirty speech, sensuality, prevalent sexual improprieties. I'll give you an example of what this looks like. And this just kind of comes from my youth pastor days. Um, yeah, I do, I'm t- totally a virgin. Me and my girlfriend, we're staying pure. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that means like, like there's second base and third base and we're somewhere around the shortstop. <laughs> like that's like, we're not actually having sex. Like we, we act like we are, but we keep our clothes on. So there's no like, in the very legal sense, there's no penetration, right? And so because of that, it's, we didn't go all the way. Well, okay, cool. So maybe it's not fornication, but it's definitely unclean. Uncleanness, all-encompassing, a work of the flesh, lewdness. This, this word in the Greek, it spoke of an unbridled lust, a shamelessness or excess. The idea behind the word lewdness was to describe someone who engages in sin brazenly or publicly. Like this is someone who flaunts their immorality, doesn't keep it behind closed doors. They, they want to make sure everyone knows they're brazen about it. Like there's no shame at all. There's this, this compulsion to shock people, shock public decency. A lewd person doesn't just engage in practices. They take pride in their deviancy. Idolatry, simply the, the worship of false gods. Like, and note, an idol, like an idol, the word speaks more broadly than like a Buddha statue. Okay, you're like, I got no idols. There's no little Buddha statues in my house I light incense to. You're right. There's just an idol with four wheels in your garage that you worship often. Like basically an idol is just anything that, that, that fills the place that Jesus should reside. Anything that takes a preeminent place in your life above God. This can refer to a God of your own opinion, your own imagination, your own making. Like I'll hear people say something like this. I don't believe in a God who would send people to hell for eternity. Okay, that's cool, but, but that God doesn't exist, at least not biblically, which means you're making your own God. You've, they're not talking about Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're creating your own God. He either exists or he doesn't. Sorcery. This is an interesting Greek word. It's, it's pharmakia. It's from where we get our English word pharmacy. Like the word spoke of drug use associated with the magical, mystical black arts or was really anything um, in, the, in, in the black arts that altered your consciousness. Like it's, it's a truth that hallucinogenics have a longstanding history with the occult. Things like LSD, mushrooms, acid, like what they end up doing is they open doors that should be left closed. Sorcery, witchcraft, 
illicit drug use to alter your consciousness, hatred, enmity, the ill treatment of others, contentions, which means strife or wrangling. Like this is a, this is a person who possesses a competitive and argumentative spirit. You know those people? That just, they're filled with contention. They, they don't want to argue to get to truth. They just want to argue to be a jerk. They love arguing, arguing for the sake of arguing, which in some aspects has a place, but in other aspects, it crosses over. You're just being annoying. You're just arguing because you like the, the rise, the stir. You take the other argument, even if you don't hold it, to, because that's just you. Contention, jealousies. And the Greek zealous, it spoke of a punitive zeal, an envious rivalry. Like a jealousies describes the desire to have what someone else has. Outbursts of wrath. Thymos is the word in the Greek. It described kind of a volcano and an anger that just bubbles and bursts forth. Describes a person with a terrible temper. Someone that's, that's unable to control their passion. Selfish ambition. I, I love this, this word in the Greek. It, it originally was kind of a good thing, the word. It, it meant to work for pay but it came to describe those who only worked for pay. In Paul's day, this word was used to describe politicians. A person with a selfish ambition possessed no desire to work for the, the greater good, but was only motivated out of a desire to enrich themselves. Dissension or division. Someone that intentionally does things to stand apart they capitalize on divisions instead of unity, heresies. You know, when we think of heresies, we think of like, like false doctrine, wrong doctrine. The word in the Greek just originally meant to choose. Over time, it came to be associated with someone that communicated their position for the purpose of dividing. Another, another translation would be set. You hear about the sect of the Pharisees or the sect of the, the Sadducees. This is a group of people that take positions to divide themselves from others. It describes someone that's hardened in their decisions, their positions. Someone that possesses an unyielding intolerance. They're right and everyone else is wrong. They won't listen to reason. Envy. Unlike jealousies where you want what someone else has, this word is used to describe someone who's just bitter at someone else's good fortune, someone else's prosperity. It's when you see someone else, a coworker, get a promotion. To be jealous would be like, I want that promotion for myself. To be filled with envy means I just don't like them because they got the promotion and I didn't. It's something within. They'll hold a grudge, murder, this means what it says, premeditated manslaughter, drunkenness. The word spoke of drinking alcohol with the direct intention of being intoxicated or impaired. Like There's no prohibition in scripture against drinking alcohol. There is absolutely a prohibition about being drunk, drinking for the purpose of impairment 
or intoxication. Understand, the work of the flesh is not concerned with how much do you have to drink to be drunk, which is how the legalist handles drunkenness, right? Well, like, okay, according to Cole, like how much do you have to drink to really be drunk, to then be drunken, right? Like, is it amount where I can drive or is it just, you know, where I can walk to the restroom? Like how much is too much? How much to be drunk? Like that's how the legalist processes a statement like this. And thus we'll come up with all types of, of, of combobulations of how to determine drunkenness when it's kind of different for person to person. And it's concept. It's not concerned with how much, the amount, but the intent. Because there is a different intent. There is drinking with the intention of being social and having a good time, but then there's drinking with the intention of, I need to forget about the rest of today. I need need a drink to run from my problems. I I need a drink to dull the pain. Drunkenness speaks of the intention, not necessarily just the amount. And then there's revelries, literally partying, having a good time. You remember back in the day where like party, like the word party used to be a noun? Like I'm going to a party? Like today it's no, no longer a noun, it's a verb. Like what are you doing? I'm partying. Like it's, it's somehow shifted in our culture from being a noun to being a verb. And in this sense, this is what Paul's referencing with revelries. It's not a bad thing to party, to have a good time. But what Paul is speaking and what he's saying is a work of the flesh is unrestrained partying. It's partying with the specific intention of the activity satisfying a deeper need, a dip, deeper desire, and the like. No doubt. Paul is admitting that his list is incomplete, but he uses this phrase to basically define a work of the flesh as being anything pursued with the wrong intention. Anything, even things that are good can be used by the flesh in an evil way. Food, we need it to survive. Our body needs food for nourishment, sustenance, And yet, very easily, the flesh can take that good, natural, God-given desire, twist it, warp it, and now you're a glutton. You're eating for the wrong purposes, much in the same way as drunkenness. Exercise, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to exercise, to be healthy. That's a good feeling. And yet, very easily, can the flesh take exercise and the endorphin rush and the body image issues and make it a bad thing, a work of the flesh. The flesh can take all kinds of things. Work. It's a good thing to work. We were created to work. And it can't work very, very quickly, become an idol. Rob you from the other things that God wants. Verse 21, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that is loaded, so we need to kind of unpack it. Let's just kind of work through through what Paul's saying. Just as I told you in time past. It's it's interesting that this entire topic, the works of the flesh, like this was not something that Paul was just introducing to the Galatians. The implications here is that while Paul was in Galatia, this was something he taught on frequently. This was something he communicated to them. He's revisiting, in a sense, a previous lesson. 
Like, it's important that we recognize how the flesh naturally manifests things in our lives if we're to understand and recognize how the Spirit works in a contrary way. Understand right up front, grace is diametrically opposed to the works of the flesh. God's grace will never produce these things. Then he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like what's he saying by inherit the kingdom of God? Almost universally, scholars believe that Paul is speaking about heaven, like something that is not earned, something that is not acquired, but something that is, quote, inherited, that we inherit the kingdom of God, or what Jesus did on the cross, a free gift given to us that we receive in faith. But there's no way around the reality that Paul is saying that, quote, those who practice such things, what things? These works of the flesh. Paul's saying that you will not go to heaven to nail that, he says, will not. Like that phrase, it spoke of a certainty, a deep conviction. Paul's not saying, there's a good chance you might not go to heaven. Or, uh, you know, you're you're gonna roll your die. We'll just see where it falls. No, he's saying, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's, There's no room for wiggling. Now the key is what Paul means when he says, practice such things. This word practice, prazo in the Greek, it means to be busy with. Paul's not referring to someone who does such things or who has committed such things. But rather, Paul is speaking to someone who is continuing in such things who's occupying themselves, are busy with these behaviors. The person has actively resisted the Spirit's conviction in their lives. This is what Paul is referring to. This idea of practicing, this is not a work committed in weakness, but rather one committed in rebellion. The key is to understand that Paul is referring to a lifestyle and not a mistake. Like You see, if Jesus changes your life by changing your heart, then it's only natural he will also change your behaviors. It's the entire concept of grace. Though it's entirely possible and likely that you're going to screw up and fall into sin. Even daily, please understand, it's impossible for a life to remain the same if it's been filled with the Holy Spirit. These works of the flesh are things you could trip up and commit in a moment of weakness, but they're not going to be characteristic of the life filled with the Holy Spirit. It's oil and water. Charles Spurgeon once said, the grace that does not change my life will not change my soul. Never forget, these works of the flesh will naturally manifest themselves in your life apart from the direct intervention of God. Without his spirit in control, this list describes what the flesh, your flesh, will fulfill. If you don't think you're capable of committing adultery, you don't know your flesh very well. If you don't think your flesh 
is likely to be jealous or envy or fornicate or be selfishly uh, motivated by its own ambition. Like your flesh will do these things naturally if you allow them to. It's what the flesh fulfills. It's what the spirit though resists. You see, without his spirit in control, this list is what will happen. So how do we not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Paul already gave us the answer, didn't he? Verse 16, how do you not fulfill the lust of the flesh? How do you resist the flesh naturally doing these things? Walk in the spirit, which is amazing. Paul's already said the spirit and the flesh act contrary to one another, right? So not only will the spirit refuse to allow the flesh to fulfill its sinful intent, but then it will naturally yield a counterwork in my life as a result. So, so understand, the spirit, the flesh, contrary. This is what the flesh wants to do. The spirit, if we walk in the spirit, will naturally say, no, ain't happening. And in addition to resisting these things the flesh wants to do, the spirit then also naturally begins to yield and produce other things totally contrary to that. Look at it. Verse 22, but, what? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, but. In contrast, this is the contrast. In contrast to the works of the flesh, Paul now presents the fruit of the spirit, did you notice something in the way, the, the way Paul starts? This? The, flesh, the flesh works, right? And, and when you hear that word work, you think of a factory, manufacturing, sweat, human activity. But on the flip side, we don't have a work of the Spirit, but we rather have a fruit of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit means that the Spirit produces godly fruit in our lives. Now, note this word fruit. It's a picture, okay? Like if you're expecting literal, that's weird. It's a picture that's being given to describe something supernatural, a supernaturally natural result of the spirit in our lives, fruit. It, it's not birthed by working. It grows through abiding, you never see an apple on an apple tree real, trying real hard to be an apple. Like fruit doesn't work to be fruit. Fruit's pretty lazy. Like grapes just hang out on a vine and they mooch and they suck nourishment. They get fat and then eaten, but you get the point. This idea of fruit, like it, it's, it's a natural byproduct. Now understand this list by Paul. It's meant to be seen as evidence of a spirit-filled life. In a sense, Paul is presenting here a description of Christ-likeness, characteristics that we find in the life of Jesus and we'll see in our lives if we walk by his grace and by the spirit. These things are not manufactured. You can't make them happen. You can't do them. They're yielded. Fruit appears naturally. Now note, while we're given works of the flesh, plural, works of the flesh, Paul sets this contrast up with the fruit of the Spirit. This is a singular term, the fruit. 
Now, there are those who see love, the first in the list, as the fruit of the Spirit, and then everything else is kind of a byproduct of love. And I guess there's a, a case to be made that that's the way to read this. But you can't make that case from the Greek. You see, in the Greek, Paul is saying that this list of things are the singular fruit yielded through the Spirit's working in our lives. Now, now we have gifts, plural, that the Spirit provides that differ from person to person. But Paul is clear there's one fruit that the Spirit wants to accomplish in all of us. You see, if, if the fruit of the Spirit was love and then all of these things come as a result of love, then you know what our legalistic tendencies would do? To evaluate how well we're doing based upon which, which one of these things we can point to. And yet the idea of fruit is to be holistic. They all grow together. It's all the fruit or none of the fruit. Also notice, the fruit of the Spirit is. Underline that, that word, is. Paul presents this work of the Holy Spirit producing fruit in our lives in the present active tense. The Spirit is presently producing these things in our lives. They don't come all at once. They don't come immediately. They take time to grow and time to develop, but they will all happen. Let's just run through them quickly. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, there were four Greek words that Paul could have chosen uh, to, to, to write this word love, but instead of using those that speak to a more emotion, he uses the word agape. This is not an emotional type of love. Agape love exists beyond natural affection. The word spoke of the mind. It described the state of being. Understand, no one would ever say that they felt agape love. Agape love existed because you decided to love or you decided not to love. Agape love was a decision of the will. Regardless of how I feel, I'm choosing to demonstrate a much deeper, greater reality. Love. It's the type of love that exists from God to us, from us to God, from us to others. It describes a marital type love. Interesting, the work of the flesh, the first one, adultery, but here in the spirit, love, true love, unconditional love, joy. Like love, this, this word joy describes more than, than a state of emotional happiness. It's a state of being that exists beyond my temporary emotions, how I might be feeling. Joy can exist in sorrow as much as it can exist in happiness because I've placed my faith in God and my trust in him, anxiety and stress are replaced with an internal peace. In Philippians 4, 7, uh, excuse me, in James 1, verses 2 and 4, he wrote, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Like this joy, this overriding joy. Paul and Silas, whipped, beaten in Philippi, thrown into a dungeon. What are they doing? They're singing songs to God. That's supernatural. You can't conjure that up from yourself. That's a, something that comes from the Spirit, peace. This peace, no doubt the Spirit yields a peace between me and God that then fosters a peace between people and it's over my circumstance. Peace in the biblical sense, it doesn't speak of like being void of strife, but rather a calm in the midst of strife. Just like joy, it's, it's an internal thing. Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That the Spirit wants to give you peace no matter what's happening. 
no matter what's taking place, long-suffering, literally better patience, describes a person who's not quickly annoyed or irritated by others. Someone who has thick skin is measured in how they respond. They don't fly off the cuff. They refuse to be reactionary. This person is kind, which spoke of a moral integrity and an inner character, that they're kind to people and, and goodness an uprightness in heart, like a virtuous undergirding is what Paul's describing. It's a person who does the right thing in the right timing and always in the right way. Kind and good faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to others. It describes a person who's reliable, someone who's trustworthy. James 5, 12, we're told, let your yes be yes and your no, no. How great it is to find someone who you can trust, someone that's faithful, gentle, gentleness, meekness. Describes a strength under control. A meek person has a teachable heart, doesn't possess an attitude of superiority in the sense that they've got a chip on their shoulder or a sense of entitlement. A meek person is strong enough to take a stand, but even stronger to let it go if it's demanded. This person has self-control. Some, some of your translations might have temperance. In the original language, it, it described the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. <laughs> if you thought you might be able to do any of these, you get to self-control and you're like, that has to be supernatural because I can't do that. I've got no control over my flesh. It's something the flesh can't accomplish, but something that can take place when you see control to the spirit. Isn't it, you read through this list and who's the first person you think? You think of Jesus, which is the point. Because with the spirit of God in your life, in your heart, you will grow to be like Jesus. Against such, there is no law and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become deceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul's clear, no law can produce in a person's life what only the Spirit of God can yield. Apart from the indwelling Spirit, none of these characteristics are possible. Why? Did you notice the fruit of the Spirit? Whereas works of the flesh deal with outward activity, fruit of the Spirit seem to all reference an inward working of the heart, something that starts here and then comes out. Paul says, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That seems like a very interesting uh, statement and context to everything else we've been discussing. And yet Paul's point in this reference is to remind us in this moment of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Literally, he's saying, those who are Christ's can be free of the passions and desires of the flesh. Why? Because Jesus' flesh was crucified on our behalf. If we live in the Spirit, or literally since we've been given life in the Spirit, it's then only logical that we continue to walk in the Spirit. Continue, Paul says, and the life that you've been given. And let us not become conceited, provoke one another, envy one another, since our love for one another 
is the ultimate litmus test for a person truly walking in the grace of God and in the spirit of God. Paul closes this section by pointing us back again to this warning of how we treat one another as being a safeguard to the sneakiness of legalism. He says that even when the spirit is yielding this type of fruit, isn't it so easy that our flesh can't become, that we're become, that it happens gradually? That even in the spirit, seeing fruit of the spirit, our flesh then does what? It wants to become puffed up with pride, doing so well. Provoke one another, be filled with envy. Flesh is so sneaky. Now the flow of our thought and Paul's argument should be as follows, and we'll close with this. First, what is more appealing? Looking at the works of the flesh, working at the fruit of the spirit. What is more appealing to you? The natural works of the flesh, operating how you were born, allowing the flesh to just do it, to do what it wants, or the supernatural manifestations of the spirit. Not operating how you were born, but instead operating how you were reborn. Operating how you were truly designed, not what you were because of sin. And if you prefer the latter, knowing that these things are produced and are not manufactured, you must consider the practicalities then, right? Of how do we walk in the Spirit? How are we led by the Spirit? How do we live in the Spirit, right? If you're like me and you're processing all of this, you're like, the flesh, I really, that's not a great list. Lots of terrible consequences. On the flip side to it, there's the spirit, and I want that, right? And I get that if, if I walk, if I'm led, if I live by the spirit, but how do I do that practically? Understand, walking in the spirit occurs when you're constantly filling your life with the opportunities to be supernaturally influenced by God, knowing that these things will naturally manifest in a reciprocating godly result. And what result is that? The fruit of the Spirit. I'll say it again. Walking in the Spirit occurs when you're constantly filling your life with opportunities to be supernaturally influenced by God, knowing that these things will naturally manifest a reciprocating godly result fruit of the Spirit. The law. The law bids me act a certain way so that I'll become more like Christ. But it is grace, friend, that simply invites me to hang out with Jesus, to be in a relationship, knowing that I naturally become like those I hang out with. You don't have to read the Bible because you have to. You don't have to pray because you have to. You don't have to come to church because you have to. You do these things. You fill your life with these things. Why? To create opportunities for God to supernaturally impact your heart, knowing that when that happens, fruit's produced. It's a relationship with Jesus. Friend, walking in the Spirit is nothing more than spending time with Jesus. Because you can't do that physically, can you? Hanging out with Jesus is a spiritual exercise. Opening his word, diving into his word, it's a spiritual exercise. Praying, it's a spiritual exercise. It's not me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus. There's a spiritual nature to it. So when I walk in the spirit, I'm spending time with Jesus by his spirit because I'm reconciled through the spirit to God. And then it's the fruit of the spirit that comes out, that's produced, that's yield, which really is nothing more than the results 
of this relational influence. You want to see fruit of the Spirit? Hang out with Jesus. Walk in the Spirit.